Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Hey guys, welcome to the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails, more specifically the Long War, more precisely our build-up to the last siege of Vienna. We're having a good time counting down the days towards the last siege of Vienna, and it's a really, really good story with a lot of detailed, intricate parts involved. This is why it's taken us eight episodes and we're not even there yet. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So if you want to know what the background detail to it all is, make sure you check out the previous episodes. If you're waiting for me to just get on with this, you'll have to wait just a few precious minutes because I'm here to tell you about something very exciting that our Agora friends recently decided to do. It's turned into a kind of annual thing. It's this thing called agoraphobia, where to, I suppose, mark the fact that it's Halloween in October. It's also the month of my birthday, by the way. The Agora folks get around, they gather around, and they release a short little episode on something particularly spooky or interesting or creepy in general. If you're in the mood for the heebie-jeebies, check out the Agora Podcast Network and check out the Agoraphobia episode. It's really good. I've listened to it myself. 
And yeah, I'm not actually taking part this time, you should know, just in case you go over there looking for me. But there's a lot of very talented history podcasters who do take part, and you'll be wise to check them out. Of course, Linda Plumsey-Fells is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, which includes a whole load of wonderful podcasts just like me. So do me a favour, go and listen to the Agoraphobia, and let the people in charge or the people involved know that you enjoyed it. Anything else? Well, you should know if you're really just not able to get enough of this story in your life, if you just want more of the Siege of Vienna into your veins. Well, I'm probably not meant to say that, but if you do want more of it in your life, then be sure to check out the Jan Sobieski biography, which is a 12-part biography series that is running at the same time as this, and it can be yours for just $5 a month, which I'm told is half the price of Netflix, or the price of a rip-off coffee from Starbucks. And I'm allowed to say rip-off coffee from Starbucks because I used to work in a coffee shop. Granted, it was Costa, which is Starbucks' biggest competition, but yeah, at the point, it's a rip-off, and so was Costa. But it's fine because I don't work there anymore, so I can look upon them all smug. But deep down, knowing exactly what it's like to be a barista and have all these people complain, every second customer saying, I can't believe it was that expensive, you get the point. It's $5 a month, folks. And for that, you can get that content, you can get Jan Sobieski's 12-part biography series, and so much more. Patrons are going to get it real good in the future, guys. Trust me, everything from a Bismarck biography to early access to all your favorite shows, and then some, including a new show, of course, which I recently announced. All of this is to come, and if you would like to support When Diplomacy Fails monetarily and get some stuff in return, that is the best place to do that. Before we start this episode, I'd just like to remind you guys as well that it's my birthday next Monday, so there will be no episode. However, as I've just ranted on and on and on about, if you would like to still get some When Diplomacy Fails in your life, then Jan Sobieski will still be out there kicking ass and taking names. Probably not allowed to say ass, but it's nearly my birthday and I'm nearly 26, so I'm taking no prisoners. You guys are super patient and I super love you, and I hope that you are super excited for the latest episode of The Long War. So thanks for your patience, and let's get into it. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 8 of The Long War. Last time we gave what looks likely to be the last background-type episode on the relationship between the Habsburgs and Ottomans. Throughout these four episodes of background, We set the scene and hopefully cleared up some hazy details and answered some questions you guys may have had about the two empires. If you still have any outstanding questions on what's going on and who is who, don't be shy. Make sure to contact me at the usual channels, wdfpodcast at hotmail.com, or just send me a message through the Facebook page or contact me on Twitter at wdfpodcast. Who said that I cannot sneak beef it in everywhere? I didn't say that, and there you go. Today, though, I'm happy to say that we finally begin our diplomatic coverage. Oh yes, you've all been very patient and I'm so excited to finally begin unpacking this incredible, fascinating and interconnected era of the 1680s. The episode here should tie us back to the first three episodes we did on Louis XIV, if you remember episodes 1, 2 and 3, because it relates to Leopold's concerns of the military and diplomatic situation in the West, explains why exactly Leopold believed, until it was almost too late, that France, rather than the Ottomans, posed the gravest threat to the Habsburgs in Europe. While the Habsburg alliance with Jan Sobieski and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is probably the most famous outcome of the diplomatic wrangling before that destination was arrived at, 
The Habsburgs had to traverse some pretty difficult issues, and their agents had to overcome the pre-existing agendas of the other powers, especially when those powers preferred to pursue their own relationship with Louis XIV, independent of the Habsburgs. Before I begin, I just want to push one more time the Jan Sobieski biography down your throats. If you want some extra detail on Jan Sobieski and who he was and who exactly the Habsburgs were trying to make deals with, make sure to check that out. Go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. For all you patrons that are listening, make sure to let me know if you're enjoying it. Put a lot of effort into it and I really can't wait to see what you guys think of it. But hey, let's continue on with this cracking story. I will now take you to Leopold's court where a crisis seemed to be setting in. I must say it is one of the pleasantest places I ever have seen, I believe, in Europe. The English traveller Martin Lister describes the site for Louis XIV's Versailles Palace. The treaties of Nijmegen, concluding fully by autumn 1679, were a Bourbon triumph. On paper they seemed to confer a heap of advantages upon France and their most Christian king, Louis XIV. A war which had been begun as a quest to punish and occupy the Dutch Republic and achieve a measure of glory along the way, had degenerated into a slugging match between France and the other powers of Europe. By its end, France had certainly grasped several territories and they advanced their influence into the neighbouring German states. While the net penalties were found in the French king's newly established reputation as a warmonger and a threat to the European peace. Even if the French victory was up for debate considering its costs, it was difficult to debate the idea that the war hadn't treated the Habsburgs particularly favourably. Throughout it, they had stumbled through the military proceedings, demonstrated a terminal inability to cooperate properly with their Dutch ally, and they also made no significant gains at the peace table. Louis would not be removed from Lorraine, despite the fact that its exiled duke protested loudly in Habsburg military service, and French Comte, that once threatening Spanish fief, was now thoroughly integrated into the French realm. Further causes for concern abounded. France had occupied most of Alsace, though under terms which granted its inhabitants greater religious and societal protections than most of Louis's other subjects. Along the Rhine, the French strategic interest had been firmly established, and the Bourbons had dutifully married into the Palatine family to secure that flank even further, with Louis's brother united to a daughter of that elector. Furthermore, Frederick William of Brandenburg, disgusted at his losses at the peace table where victory on the battlefield had seemed so sweet, appeared to go off the idea of cooperation with the Habsburgs, and sided, as opportunistically as ever, with the French. Saxony seemed intimidated by the build-up of French arms and the growth of its influence, 
and they remained pliable while Bavaria was unquestionably in the French camp. The ecclesiastical electors in Mainz, Trier and Cologne all took their cues from Paris, and the big story east of the Rhine continued to be the locals' distaste at the vaunted Habsburg need to garrison troops in their homes. It seemed far better to form a friendship with France and see the troops go, many minor princes upheld, than continue to endure this Habsburg occupation, especially in a time of official peace. The war with France had left scars in the psychology of the smaller princes parallel to the Rhine, whose lands had been occupied and ravaged by soldiers, often on their way to meet the French or garrison the frontier. These ill feelings, combined with the perceived invincibility of France following the war, convinced many a German prince to remain neutral, or, if that wasn't possible, to persuade their emperor of their unwillingness to fight the Sun King. This would have been disconcerting to the Habsburgs and their Spanish branch in particular, once Louis began annexing a series of settlements and lands in the name of the Reunions, as old lands once owned or traditionally ruled by other lands were conveniently reunited back into the French fold. It is helpful to imagine a near solid wall of buffer states growing up between the Habsburg hereditary lands in the southeast of the Holy Roman Empire and along the Rhine border with France in the west. This buffer wall seemed to grow with every new reunion annexation and the vaunted inability of the Holy Roman Empire states to cooperate against the French, especially when the war had only just ended, seemed to grant Louis a de facto free hand as he bluffed to his heart's content and rapidly increased his own security in the process. These moves culminated in a direct assault and seizure of Strasbourg along the southern portion of the Rhine in September 1681. But even before that act, the fortress of Freiburg further down south granted the French a military base across that all-important river, demonstrating that Louis was more than willing to push French borders beyond their traditional extent. In the always joyful constitution of the Holy Roman Empire, further rumours abounded that Louis wasn't content with this expansionist policy, and he was targeting the very person of Leopold himself, despite Leopold favouring his own son Joseph to succeed him as Holy Roman Emperor, it was whispered that Louis had made a set of agreements with several German princes who would themselves act on his behalf to ensure that Louis XIV, or a candidate of his choosing, was elected instead of Leopold's son. Whatever the truth of such rumours, and most historians don't believe Louis was genuine in this policy, they were certainly enough to cause alarm in Vienna and to make Leopold worry even further about the troublesome Bourbons. If we consider that Louis's diplomatic ventures across the length and breadth of Europe in Poland, Hungary and the Ottoman Empire were well known to Habsburg agents, it must have seemed as though the French were trying to encircle the Habsburgs with a newfound energy and determination. The Netherlands always remained a touchy subject, as the Nijmegen treaties left the issue of where and what Louis could claim conveniently vague. In addition, Madrid was well known to be lagging behind its neighbours, suffering from a chronic weakness which paralysed its ability to resist Louis alone, as had been demonstrated not merely when it had fought France alone in the late 1660s, but also during its own paltry displays during the Franco-Dutch War. Both Vienna and the Dutch had grown weary of constantly propping up the Spanish war effort, and with Don Carlos II plainly not long for this world, the very fabric of the Habsburg world seemed to have the terrible potential to unravel before their very eyes. In opposition to this downward trend, Leopold had elected to keep several of his old regiments from the recent war in being for the sake of defence, if nothing else. 
Many of these resided in southern Germany or along the Rhine. They were aimed at keeping an eye on whatever Louis might be cooking up. Even with South Germany militarily defensible, to the north the Netherlands posed the strategic problems notwithstanding the Spanish weaknesses. Following the Habsburgs' own pitiful performance in the war, or at very least their unimpressive efforts and showings in linking up with the Dutch, especially when it came to matching the military challenge put down by the French, The Hague was less eager than before to pursue a renewed pro-Habsburg line. William III remained utterly opposed to granting Louis XIV any concessions, but the Dutch peace party was on a high following the recent costly war, and there seemed little that the 30-year-old Dutch stadtholder could do, for the moment at least, to change their minds. If the world outside of Leopold's Hofburg Palace in Vienna seemed to be crumbling, then affairs within it were equally exhausting. It was here, before and around the person of the Holy Roman Emperor, that different factions and persons within the court vied for influence, which could normally be encapsulated by the image of groups of men arguing for one policy line against another group who argued for another. These camps were generally populated and led by ambassadors from other states, so, for example, the so-called Spanish faction was led by the Spanish ambassador and supported by his Dutch colleague, and they both favoured a policy which would ensure total Habsburg focus on what France was about to do next, whatever happened anywhere else, including in the steadily more threatening front with the Turks. In opposition to this faction was the Catholic group, which aimed at bolstering not merely the prevalence of that creed throughout the Habsburg lands, and we know how well that turned out, but also increasing the unity between the other Catholic rulers of Europe. This unity was to be sought for the purpose of directing the combined resources of these rulers of the true faith, first against the influences of Protestantism, though without resorting to military means, and second against the Islamic and apparently arming Ottoman Empire to the east. This group was led by several of the Jesuit advisors who had been with Leopold since his youth, and they were supported by several Catholic German princes like those of Bavaria, and was further underpinned by the vocal and moral support of the papal envoy, whose new master, Pope Innocent XI, had succeeded to Rome in 1676. Pope Innocent's hardline stance against the Ottomans and his insistence on granting Louis XIV whatever he desired in order to foster greater unity between the Bourbons and Habsburgs in support of the end goal against the Turks characterised papal diplomacy in the era. Through such a policy, one historian noted that Pope Innocent sharpened all dilemmas. In a sense, then, the factions at court can be summarised into a Western party, opposed to Louis, ignorant of the Ottomans and inheriting the tensions of the previous war, and the Eastern party, united by papal support, religiously motivated and totally opposed to the Ottoman Empire's increasing activities in the East. It is clear that both sides believe the other, ignorant of the realities of the day. But not every ambassador or power could be defined as belonging to either one of these groups. Scandinavia remained difficult to discern, particularly as Denmark seemed to enter Louis' orbit after the Franco-Dutch War, while Sweden seemed, momentarily at least, to leave it. Brandenburg remained typically non-committal, thanks to the will-he-won't-he status of the great elector, as did several minor princes in the centre of the empire who simply desired they be left alone to repair the damage wrought by the previous war. Into the mix, certain lies and rumours were put about to encourage action. For example, the Spanish faction argued for 
Louis's blatant desire to upend the peace of Europe and his schemes for the position of Holy Roman Empire and his never-ending quest for glory. The Catholic group insisted that the Ottomans were weak or strong, depending on the audience they were talking to, and they argued that a holy league between all good, pious Catholic rulers was the only true way to combat them, and they demanded that petty jealousies and rivalries be put aside in the name of the bigger picture, which, as we'll come to see, was easier said than done. Into each of these two camps fell different men from Leopold's actual cabinet, though his president of the War Council, Hermann of Baden, who had taken over from Raimondo Montecuccoli after that veteran's death in 1680, was a resolute member of the Spanish faction. In other words, Hermann of Baden was determined to shut his ears and eyes defiantly against any mention of the idea that the true threat to the Habsburgs was coming from the East. An awful lot of names could be thrown at you right now from Leopold's court and from the different capitals of Europe, where individual ambassadors first tried to persuade their colleagues in the likes of Paris, Munich, Vienna, London, The Hague, Berlin and Madrid of the need to follow either policy, and then attempted to persuade the native government there as to the logic and necessity of its case. In most cases, because Hermann of Baden had come to influence Leopold, the official line in Vienna and from the Austrian Habsburgs generally remained intensely anti-French, which I suppose is understandable considering the aftermath of the Franco-Dutch War, but this logically led then to the other side of that argument, which meant that they were ignorant of the Ottoman threat. So it was that when Habsburg agents operated in Europe, they did so generally against their French counterparts, and on the understanding that the end goal was the mustering of European and especially German opinion against France and behind Austria. Yet, as we've seen, although these agents worked hard in pursuit of such a policy, the further from Vienna they went and the closer to Paris they went, the less likely the local German rulers were to listen to them. Tired of war, of the Habsburg demands on their resources, manpower and lands, and reluctant to challenge Louis XIV when his position seemed so supreme, there was a general frustration in many of the western capitals as well as in the smaller German principalities that the Habsburg agents visited. We could call it defeatist, and certainly the Habsburg agents would have labelled it so in their bitter letters home, or perhaps something less polite in private, but to those native governments and their agents, it was the Habsburgs who simply refused to believe that things were no longer as they had been, and that this new state of affairs had to be accepted as the new status quo. Far from defeatist, it was the Habsburg agents and their masters in Vienna whose own stubbornness meant the continuation of the war even after it had ended. To a large extent, although Vienna had a full cabinet of different statesmen with different roles, titles and critically agendas, it is Hermann of Baden we should remember above all. John Stoy, in his detailed and invaluable background of the era, noted on Hermann of Baden that A younger son of the noble but impoverished House of Baden in western Germany, he had spent his youth restlessly striving for advancement. He collected ecclesiastical posts, took some share in impractical plans for colonisation overseas, but finally made his career as a soldier and politician. He too distinguished himself in the campaigns against France. He was brave, ambitious, fussy and not very articulate in discussion, but he stoutly upheld the alleged need to continue at all costs and in all seasons the policy of resistance to French aggrandizement in the empire. This accorded well with the general bias of opinion at court, the defence of Habsburg interests, particularly the distribution of forces between the eastern and western fronts, 
would depend on the judgment of this new president. Militarily as well as diplomatically responsible for Habsburg affairs, Hermann can be upheld as one of the primary reasons for the Habsburgs' intense distraction with France at a time when the old truce with Constantinople seemed in so much jeopardy. Thanks to him and his position, the primacy of his view at court and the increasingly expansionist ambitions of Louis and the reunions, the Catholic group was mostly sidelined during this point, and the Spanish faction, or the Western faction, was at its peak of influence in Vienna. This trend in popular policy would very nearly cost the Habsburgs everything. When we consider precisely how many different courts and entities Leopold's foreign office had to concern itself with, it's not hard to see how the French threat could seem so all-consuming. Hermann of Baden had to ensure representation of the Habsburg interest in the obvious places, in Bavaria, Brandenburg and Saxony, where all of them required an envoy with powers and letters, ready to act at a moment's notice, but the four electors along the Rhine were also in need of strong nudges in the right direction, and a proper diplomatic mission was thus permanently sent there, lest they fall further into Paris's arms. Then there were several wild cards, princes or bishops who controlled disparate but wealthy territories, which critically meant that they could raise and pay for large bodies of troops out of proportion to their physical size, gather a few of these rulers, like the three Brunswick rulers of Hanover, Kell and Wolfenbüttel, and the result could be impressive. Furthermore, at Regensburg itself, the imperial diet sat at all times, and representatives of every single estate from every single state, however large or small, could be found here. This was a great rendezvous point and a great place to form strategic partnerships, if of course the rulers back home could be persuaded to agree to them by the Habsburg agent in their capital. It was thus often a twofold process to procure additional allies or guarantees. There was no guarantee that the system would remain either rigid or predictable, with certain states boasting sway over their own German sphere of influence, and of course the usual petty rivalries, squabbles and interests all to consider at the same time. Asberg agents had to overcome the challenges posed by a constitution like no other entity in the world. The overlapping, contradictory and competing elements of the Holyroman Empire were on full display once any kind of policy was pushed for. For example, several minor German princes were members of different circles called the Reichskreis. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but it basically meant an imperial circle, and several members of one circle possessed dynastic interests in another, or had friends in another, or had made prior commitments to another. If we add to this the complications posed by the imperial free cities like Hamburg or Frankfurt, the picture becomes even more convoluted. It's a wonder that the Habsburg bureaucracy had enough men to fill all these necessary positions in ambassadorships, and yet they were inherently necessary because, with very few exceptions, each one of these potential pressure points resided in there a French agent willing to go to the exact same lengths to acquire for his master the results that Louis XIV of France desired. All the while, Louis's diplomats were instructed to remind the courts they resided in of the central threat which the Habsburgs posed to the empire and of the monies, protections and freedoms they could save by, yes, allying themselves with France. At the same time as all of this was going on, Habsburg diplomats were in constant contact with their own diplomats from proper European states, and you can be sure that Denmark, Sweden, Russia, England and the Dutch all possessed their own angles and 
would exercise their own strategies in the empire for getting what they wanted. It is, of course, impossible to account for the Habsburg activity in every one of the hundreds of German or European courts, but it is possible, on the other hand, to give an account of the perceptions and moods which prevailed in the more dominant ones. Brandenburg, for one, was ruled by the victor of Fairbellin and the breaker of Swedish power, Frederick William, named the great elector since his triumphs against Sweden in the previous war, which had been a boon for Brandenburg, Prussia's prestige, but not much else, thanks to the dissatisfying results of the peace treaties. Frederick William was adamant that the new status quo of French power had to be accepted by the Habsburgs, and he continued to frustrate Vienna at every opportunity in pursuit of such an end. Berlin made its own treaty with Louis XIV in January 1682, which committed Louis to no more expansion along the Rhine, a treaty which the great elector would uphold as his successful foreign policy, at a time when the Habsburgs were plainly unable to make any significant headway in any significant court. When the Habsburgs appealed for unity and condemnation in the face of their reunions at the Regensburg Diet, Brandenburg opposed the measure. When in 1682, some sought to oppose Brandenburg's obstinacy by arguing that the Turks were the true danger, Berlin's official word was that the Ottomans were merely a paper tiger and that their back had been broken with the loss in 1664 at the Battle of St. Gothard. In 1683, of course, with the Ottomans plainly unbroken, this line was replaced with one that appealed for unity and an end to the Habsburg-Bourbon rivalry for the sake of European and Christian integrity, though Frederick William, as we'll see, remained surprisingly aloof and somehow deaf to calls of Habsburg aid during the crisis months. A new envoy and hopes for a fresh start accompanied Ferdinand Lobkowicz when he made his way to Munich in November 1679, in the hopes of bringing the Bavarians back into the Habsburg fold. The war had been tough for the Bavarians, as their elector had, by virtue of Francophilia, brought much devastation into the electorate's western lands. In addition, though, Bavaria had plainly proven its strategic importance by capably blocking Habsburg attempts to find a quicker and more efficient route westwards. With Bavaria in the pro-French camp, a long and time-consuming walk to the northwest between the tangle of loyalties and familiarities along the Dutch border, was required and endured as a prelude to several campaigns. With a view towards changing this, Slobkovich hoped to persuade the new elector, Max Emanuel, of the necessity in resurrecting the old wittelsbach habsburg Accord, which had so sustained both Austria and Bavaria, virtually to the end, in the course of the Thirty Years' War. Any appeals to tradition did not really gel with the youthful and ambitious new elector, though, and for a time Max Emanuel seemed more interested in simply letting the old policy continue while he enjoyed his newfound status and entitlements in a court of pleasures. John Stoy noted that the Bavarian elector had no intention of shackling himself to the political traditions handed down from his father's time, but he was too shrewd and also too uninterested deliberately to reverse them. In the event, Max Emmanuel seemed more than willing to maintain a pro-French line. His Francophile chancellor stayed in place, and his sister was pledged to wed the Dauphin. For the moment, then, there was little to do but for Lobkowicz to hold his ground. Affairs were little better in Saxony. At Dresden, John George II had approved several pro-French agreements 
the latest being in September 1679, which granted a generous subsidy to the Saxons in return for their pledge to cooperate and support the French in Europe. John George's political advisers were as pro-French as their Bavarian counterparts, but the Saxon electors' court as a whole was less decided, and consequently it became possible to stir up John George's nobles against him. What Vienna found when their diplomats pushed hard enough was that John George's court was in fact far more interested in crafting a third way out of these affairs, rather than siding with the Habsburgs or Bourbons one way or another, much like they had done during the Thirty Years' War's earlier phases, and the Saxons proposed a set of alliances with other moderately powerful states in the hope that this would give them more leverage to pursue an independent foreign policy course. In September 1680, John George II died, and his son of the same name succeeded him. Whether the third John George was willing to reinvent the Saxon Habsburg wheel had yet to be seen, though the Habsburg envoy at Dresden could at least take solace in the fact that affairs were not as clear-cut as they seemed in the equivalent German capitals. On a far more interesting or alarming note, depending on their opinions of the new elector, John George III seemed determined to recast his state as a military powerhouse to rival Brandenburg and set about rearming Saxony at a rapid rate. By March 1682, the Saxon elector and his nobles had reached an agreement whereby in return for 700,000 thalers, their elector would raise an army which would enable them to claw back some of the influence and prestige which had been lost in previous years. In line with this trend, in spring 1681, the other new German elector in Bavaria, the youthful Max Emanuel, had expressed irritation at Louis' seizure of Strasbourg and proclaimed himself ready to listen to Hasburg offers as a consequence. Alarm bells went off in Paris that their best-placed ally in the Holy Roman Empire may be due to flip sides, but the envoy Lobkowicz was on hand before the French could get their claws in. Interestingly, what Max Emmanuel wanted above all for Bavaria was a new army, and perhaps inspired by his Saxon peer, he began implementing plans to create his own standing army. By the end of 1682, it was apparent that both electors in Saxony and Bavaria had begun to make their own way in the Holy Roman Empire. From this point onwards, neither entity would ever be without a standing army again. More positive news could be found in Hanover, where Ernst Augustus of the Brunswick family had succeeded to that principality. Not yet an electorate in its life cycle, Hanover was one of those up-and-coming entities within the Holy Roman Empire that seemed poised to act as a weather vane between the Habsburgs and Bourbons. Surprisingly, perhaps, Augustus chose Vienna and used his additional lordship over Kell and Osnabrück to leverage some genuine influence in Vienna and inform Leopold that the considerable resources of his lands were in his emperor's disposal when Strasbourg fell in September 1681. It seems as though Strasbourg was a watershed moment for several German princely rulers. But even before that point, Leopold's agents, foremost among them, Hermann of Baden, had pressured the Regensburg Diet to put forward a proposal whereby all the relevant circles and princes would do their part to raise an army of 40,000 men. This was first proposed in January of 1681, but after September and the French seizure of Strasbourg, the number was quite easily raised to 60,000. Versailles claimed that the very act of proposing the raise had pressured Louis to act first and seize Strasbourg, fearful as he was that another imperial invasion would enter Alsace over its famous bridges. 
Although the impetus seems to have been there at Regensburg, the negotiations were heavily obstructed by the French agents. And by the end of 1682, little concrete progress had actually been made. Louis plainly demonstrated that he could act as he pleased in the empire without fear of any sufficient opposition, but several German participants protested that only for the end of the campaigning season, they would be out to oppose the Sun King in force. With not much to show for their efforts, though certainly with reams of letters and failed diplomatic strategies in hand, the Habsburgs were gradually being made aware of a further threat, this one from the east. It seemed inconceivable that the Ottoman Empire would violate the truce that it so willingly signed less than 20 years before, mostly because, as we'll see, Habsburg officials couldn't bring themselves to believe that, in this era of supreme crisis and power struggles with the French in the West, an additional, far more grave threat would attempt to fatally outflank them in the East. Perhaps because the outcome of such a new campaign seemed so apocalyptic, Habsburg agents such as Hermann of Baden remained somewhat in denial as spring 1682 wore on. Soon, though, the whispers from Constantinople would be too loud and too terrifying to ignore. Next time, we'll examine what happened as the Habsburgs ever so reluctantly turned their diplomatic focus away from the convoluted West and towards the more straightforward but arguably more fearsome East. Until then, history friends, my name is Zach. This has been When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.